Hello and welcome to the Education Podcast brought to you by MarketScale, where we are talking about the latest trends happening in the education world. I'm your host, Evan Bentley, and we have a very special guest today, Professor Lee Hall. She's the Wyoming Excellence Endowed Chair in the Literacy Education, part of Literacy Research Center and Clinic at the University of Wyoming. Professor Hall, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, we're, we're so pleased to have you. And I really want to, there's a few things that you specialize in, especially looking at your blog that I want to dive into, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about you, your journey through academia, what brought you to this point, uh, some of your focuses, and, uh, and then what started to pique your interest lately? Can you kind of fill us in? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing, and I think this is, I don't know, kind of funny and interesting and might be appealing to some people is initially, I didn't even know a career in academia was possible. Um, I am a first-generation college student, and I'm the only person to date in my family that has a master's um, and a PhD. Um, I have a brother and a cousin that have bachelor's degrees, and that's and and that's it. So, what you know, I I started my career as a sixth-grade language arts and social studies teacher. I worked for the Aleaf Independent School District in Houston, Texas, and it was a fabulous, fabulous job. I miss it most days, honestly, because I really loved working with the kids. And a lot of students in that classroom, in the, you know, in the time that I taught there, they, it was really common for them to have reading comprehension problems. And I worked really hard to help them, but I understood that, you know, my, you know, I, under, I knew that I didn't know everything. I knew, because um, I had gotten a master's at this point, and I had gotten a master's from Vanderbilt, and I actually owe Vanderbilt a great amount of credit for sort of opening the doors for me and letting me, you know, sort of see that, you know, a career in academia was possible, that there were people that did research into educational problems, that there were discussions, you know, nationally, internationally around, you know, education K-12 and higher ed. And until that point, I had no awareness of those things. So I really wanted to help students become better readers. And I really wanted to help adolescents become better readers. And so that prompted me to go back to graduate school to get a PhD so I could learn the research base for that, so I could learn how to do research, you know, and try to make a difference um, in K-12 education, but specifically with kids in grades 6 through 12. As part of my journey into academia, one of the things that um, I really, you know, enjoy doing is talking about my own teaching practices as a professor. So I started a blog that's Teaching Academia, and I use that as a space to explore different ways that we can teach in higher ed, to promote um, high-quality instructional practices in higher ed, regardless of what discipline that you teach in. And then over the last couple of years, I've really started thinking a lot about educational technology in higher ed specifically. How do we use it in higher ed to help the students that we teach learn? How do we do that well? What are the challenges with it? How do we create, you know, experiences for students that are going to be engaging, but that are also going to be um, applicable to their life and their career goals? So that's that's a little bit about how I got where I am today. Wow. So, I mean, you really have experience across a broad spectrum here in education. So I'm really happy we're speaking with you today. You have a blog, like you mentioned, Teaching Academia, and this focuses on higher education. I know you do have experience with the K through 12. Uh, but let's on the higher education, but specifically around designing, engaging online classes. Uh, can you talk about the best ways to motivate students without even really being in the room with them? Online classes, of course, I don't think I can watch 
TV without University of Phoenix commercial. This is the new norm. How do we truly motivate? So um, I think that's a really critical and important question. Because the thing is, you know, I mean, some people will have classes that are ace that are, I'm sorry, that are synchronous. So they'll meet, you know, in some kind of virtual space periodically. But for me, I, I have online classes that are asynchronous. So I can't require my students to show up to a shared space to see me and interact with me or to interact with each other. Right. And so my concern became immediately um, is that it's going to be very isolating. And it might be demotivating. I don't know. But I think it's a real concern for me. So I think about motivating students in online classes in a, in a few different ways. So the first thing that I seek to establish is a community in the class as a whole um, and a relationship with the student so that they will be motivated to take risks, that they will feel comfortable taking risks in what they share. I ask my students to share um, you know, a lot of the work that they do for the class, a lot of their thoughts, ideas, questions. I tell my students, um, and I think this, this, you know, contributes to motivation. I tell them that, you know, as part of the classes that I teach, they're going to have to go, um, for example, in a master's class, they're going to have to go back into their workplace and try some ideas out. Um, that's part of an evolving professional, right? That's what you do. And some of those ideas I've said, you know, they may not work out, not like you envisioned, not like you hoped, not like you read about or like I talked about, maybe it completely flops, but that's not a detriment to your grade. I still want you to come back into the online space and share your experiences with everybody so that we can talk about it. So I want to structure my class in such a way that my students know I can take risks but taking risks is, you know, dangerous because I might fail. And if I fail, I might get a bad grade. And I don't, I want to take that grade part out of the equation and make it about the act of having the experience, trying the new thing out and reflecting back on it and think about what you're going to do going forward. So um, I, I'm hopeful that that's motivating to students. I think it you know, I think it certainly gives them the space to sort of lose that fear of, um, you know, class, my class or any class, like being a performance where you have to figure out what it is that the instructor wants and then just recreate that. And if you have problems or questions, you hide those, you right? you don't share those. I want those to be shared. I want those to be discussed so that you can learn more. Um, I think that's that's my primary philosophy in terms of motivating students is to sort of de-emphasize grades and make it about the process and the experience. Right. So, I mean, in the past, maybe most students would think, OK, there's a system. I need to figure out the system, then how I manipulate it, you know, to get the grade to get. Now we're just saying or you're saying what you're pushing for is there is no system. There's just learning. We want to learn. And the negative connotations that came with failing before we want to try to get rid of those. That's exciting. Right. And yeah, and I think, you know, there obviously there are classes where there are things that, you know, they have right or wrong, concrete answers. You have to show mastery. But, you know, I think in those cases, when students don't show mastery, you can give them the chance to back up, to redo things, um, to, you know, relearn things, to have a different set of experiences so that they can move forward and show mastery. So even in those cases where you have to have classes where, you know, you have to make a certain percentage and demonstrate certain kinds of knowledge. If I don't meet that, what what's in place to help me then go back and learn it and then show that mastery and move forward in that class as opposed to 
well, I failed this exam or this test. I guess I don't understand this. And then sort of struggle with how you're going to move forward. Extremely interesting. And I want to take a step back to something you said just a little bit ago, and, and that's creating a community. Uh, Dr. Hall, I think you may answer with my next question revolving around social media, but I do want to talk about social media use, connecting with students in the classroom online, but also how students can use it to connect with each other. And I think that's maybe where we can talk about that community that you're looking to create. Uh, also, if you could touch on the importance of getting students to share their work online with a broader community so that it has a greater influence or impact. Am I, am I thinking that it's actually maybe in the social media that you're trying to create the community? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I spent a couple of years really digging into how do I use social media. And I was using Twitter because I'm in the field of education and educators are all over Twitter. So that's the medium that made sense. But I think a lot of what I'm going to say here transcends mediums, like the things that I found about how to connect and share and the problems that I've run into with it. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to look at how can I use social media in my teaching to keep, first of all, I wanted to just keep conversations going. So you can think about this in just like a face-to-face -face class. If you only see students on a Monday, how do you keep conversations going? So it's not just, we showed up for your class, we left, we'll see you next Monday, right? So that's one way to do it and build community in a traditional face-to-face -face class. But then in an online community, it keeps you talking and interaction because your interactions in an online class are very limited. It's not the same, right, as a face-to-face -face class. As a, in a face-to-face -face class, I can get to know my students. You know, some of them come in early and we chat or they, you know, they stay late and we talk about different things and you get to know them. And that's missing in an online class. So um, I usually create a course hashtag on Twitter, right? I think that's the thing that is pretty common. I think a lot of people are doing it. Um, and I, you know, I give my students guidelines and this, this, the guidelines in my experiences with it, those are all on the blog. Like if anybody wants to sort of see how I think about breaking it down in a fine grained manner, like if you just go on my blog and type in Twitter into the search, into the search bar, um, it'll come up like everything that I've ever written about how I've tried to use Twitter, the assignments I've given with Twitter, the directions, the, you know, the pitfalls, all of that will be at, at anyone's disposal. Um, so let's do Mm -hmm. Do a quick little, uh, shout out to your blog and Twitter. Where can people find your blog? What's the URL and what's your Twitter handle? Uh, so Twitter handle is at Lee, L-E-I-G-H-A, Hall, H-A-L-L, -L, and the blog is teachingacademia.com. All right, great. Okay, so now everyone can jump on that while you're listening, and uh, I'll let you continue. Yeah, so that actually, having some specific guidelines and talking to students about what to tweet, the kinds of things to share. Um, that's been really useful. That keeps the conversation going. Students find resources because the thing is, is if you think of a class of, even if it's just 25 students, I am not the only person capable of going and finding resources that are beneficial and meaningful to my students in that class. Um, and I don't, I not only have so much time in a day, any student in that class only has so much time in a day, but collectively, if you have 25 people in a class, we all, that adds up to people that can really find a lot of meaningful information, questions, connect, um, connect you with others, um, you know, on Twitter or whatever platform you're using, you know, bring in different videos, links to other people's blogs, news articles, things that are really interesting that I just would never have found because 
you know, I just only have so much time in the day. So that's nice. And the nice thing that you can do with that information, you can do this in face-to-face classes, you can do this in online classes, is as the instructor, you can mine what's going on in that feed periodically, and then you can bring some of that into class because ideally it's all connecting with class. So anything that they post on there, be it a question or a resource or whatever, is connected to what you're trying to teach. So now you can start bringing student resources into class. Um, I did this recently where I brought a student's resource into class and made it part of our online discussion for the week. That student loved it because it was a legitimate question and it was a problem she was trying to solve. And so to highlight her and say, look, this is what this student is struggling with. Here are some things that she has found that she's talked about on Twitter. Let's discuss it here this week. It's part of your grade. You get points for participating in this discussion. She really appreciated that, right? But her question was also relevant to the course. So it's a way to make this learning really relevant and useful to your students' lives, but also extend their learning and get to know them better, get to connect with them better, help them connect with each other, and um, also just keep that conversation going throughout almost the whole semester, really. Um, The other thing that you brought up was, you know, sharing their work publicly. And I think that's actually really critical. What I have found is, you know, I think it's critical because I think we're at a point where, you know, everybody's making something, right? People are part of making content and sharing it out. And some of that content's obviously better and contributes more than others. Content is king. That's what we're doing right now. Right, right. And, you know, I, I want, and I work with teachers. And so I want teachers to think about it in two ways. I want them to think about how is what I'm creating as part of this class, how is that going to be useful to other educators? And then I want them to think about how do I help kids develop this mindset? What kinds of skills do I need to be teaching to my own students to help them learn to do the kinds of things that they're doing in my class? So, you know, when they share their work, you know, and some of this work is more read than others. For a while, I had some classes where it made sense. I don't do this now, but um, previously it's made sense to keep class blogs and um, have everybody blog. And we had a whole system set up for that. And again, if you want to know how I do that with, you know, 20 plus students in a way that is manageable and will not result in you pulling your hair out. You can search, if you type blog into my blog, <laughs> it'll come up and it'll talk about how I, how I do it and the procedures and everything for it. And the thing about something like that is they can promote it, uh, I can promote it, and we ended up um, with an international audience. So, and, and some of these blogs, they went across years, right? I would teach the same class every fall and every fall we would put new content onto this blog. And when students came in, I could tell them, the writing that you're going to do for this is really important because it's going to be read. I tell them they could write under a pseudonym if they wanted to. That was fine, but it's going to be read and it's going to be read on an international level. And I could show them the statistics of, you know, here is where all the countries it's being read in. Here's about how many people are going to be looking at it per day. And some of them panic. It's, for some people, I think it's really important to know that this is scary. Um, and some people may not want to do this. And I don't always require students to do this. Um, I, you know, sometimes if we do something, particularly in a face-to-face class, um, I might have them create something in like a span of 45 minutes. And I give them the option of sharing it out onto Twitter or another platform of their choice. And if they share it out, 
they do get extra points for that, but it's not required. And if they choose not to do so, then it doesn't, it's not, they're not going to fail the class. Or it's not going to hurt their grade in, in some kind of a way. It's really just extra credit. Um, because, you know, you don't always want to share everything you create. It's not always high quality that you necessarily want other people seeing. But also, I think it's important to know that when you're asking students to share their work, um, there are going to be some students that are not comfortable with it, do not see the value in it. And so you have to figure out as an instructor, you know, to what extent do you want, you know, to push that or do you want to sort of back off and give the students space? I have found giving them space and making it for the most part optional or in a blog saying you can write under a pseudonym so nobody knows your name, um, that those things are fine. Um, if I give them space and they see other people doing it, usually at some point they will dip their toe in the water and they will start to try it out. So some people may just need some space at first and I, I, I wouldn't push them too much. Extremely interesting. Um, you said something a little bit earlier that I want to go back to. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about relevance. And so, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to state your case, but there's many out there uh, who argue that some pieces of higher education are not so relevant to the everyday working world, or that the old school thought of that you must go to college is maybe not so much a must anymore, but a nice to have. I'll let you kind of speak on this, but I've also been reading articles that was trending yesterday on LinkedIn that corporations are taking among, uh, up on, them, on themselves to create their own courses for employees who are coming into the workplace that might not have the skills that they want. So they're going to go ahead and teach them themselves in a college-like setting, almost like a community education. Can you speak on that? Um, kind of a two-part question there about the relevance and, and, uh, and higher education and how that factors into going immediately into the workplace, but then also the workplace providing continuing education. Right, sure. So, um, so first of all, I want to start with this idea of, is college a must-have? I can, on the one hand, I can understand how we're shifting into a space where you can take online courses, maybe, um, you know, not necessarily affiliated with a university that might prepare you to, you know, perform, do certain jobs. Or, I mean, there are people that build, right, they build YouTube careers, right? Yeah. Um, but, but those are, those are a minority of the people that are building, right, highly profitable YouTube careers or, you know, that are building a highly profitable. There are going to be people that are, you know, might have since they were a child, right, developed a specific hobby around baking or, you know, photography or art, and they can turn that into a business. They're still going to, you know, and, and maybe they can fill in the gaps of what they need to know about, you know, turning it into a business. But I think that's going to be a small minority of people that can do that. What I know is I actually have some friends and I graduated from college, I think in 1996 or 95. I don't remember. It's kind of all a blur at this point. <laughs> Excuse me. But I have, um, I have some friends that did not go to college. They went straight, you know, they either went into um, the service or they went straight into the workforce and they really struggle now. So if they need to switch jobs, they have a really hard time because when they go to look at job ads, the job ads are requiring bachelor's degrees for entry level positions, um, you know, and so then because they don't and it's a requirement. So because they don't have that, then they're finding that even though they might have the skill set and they might have the life experience to do a particular job because they don't have a degree they're getting the door shut in them automatically because that degree is required, right? They won't look at people who don't have it. 
So I would certainly at this point not say I don't I wouldn't say college is irrelevant because um, I've just and I've read too many job ads outside of higher ed. Right. Just that say you need a college degree. So in that sense, I think if you don't go to college, you can be setting at right now, you can be setting yourself up for something that, you know, you might have very limited options. Um, in terms of what employers are willing to hire you for, not necessarily in terms of what you're willing to do. But on the other hand, I do see like things like how knowledge is developed, how knowledge is shared, how knowledge is communicated, how we learn, like that's exploded, right, into all kinds of possibilities. But then what's online, right, if I, if I want to start a business and I don't have any knowledge about business and I want to go learn how to do that, but I don't want to go to college, how do I figure out What's the best online class to take from any number of random people that offer these online classes, right? And how do I know if I have a good, strong skill set? So I think there's a lot of people in the space that, you know, have a lot to share. But then again, that's going to vary in terms of quality. And how do I, as somebody who's not necessarily going to have a lot of knowledge about what I want to learn, know how to sift through all that and figure out, right, right what's high quality What's not, what, what am I missing? What am I not? Um, so I think it's still, I think college is still relevant at the moment. <laughs> um, but I think the, I think the problem, and I think this comes up with your corporations question, right? Is that there is some kind of um, breakdown between what goes on at the university and what's going on outside the university. Um, what do employers want, you know, um, their employees to show up and be ready to do. And so I'm guessing, right, that corporations that are creating these courses are doing so because they're having people show up that they think should be able to do particular things and they repeatedly cannot do them, right? Is that is that right? That seems to be the case. Uh, a little bit of frustration, I guess you could say. Yeah. And so then they're like, well, we'll just do it ourselves. Um, what I think can happen here is I think it's a good opportunity for, and I'll just use corporations as the example, since that's what was trending the other day, for corporations and universities to have partnerships about what is it we're trying to accomplish here, right? What is it that we need um, when people graduate with a bachelor's degree, entering whatever job that they're entering, what is it that they need to know and be able to do, but also, you know, what kinds of thinking skills and analytic skills, et cetera, do they need to have to be successful? Now, that's not just, and, and I think that what the corporations, how they would answer that question can inform what goes on at the university, right? That said, I don't think that there's any reason to be dismissive of corporations creating courses because I think that there's also an opportunity there for corporations to partner with any number of people, um, faculty at universities being just one group of people that they could partner with to think about, well, okay. You know, a university in four years can only do so much. Um, and I know like in education, they may have two years, right, in their major. So you can only do so much to prepare a professional. They're, they're not going to be experts when they leave. So if we know what the gaps are, how do we create some kind of professional learning system to help fill in those holes? And I think you can do that. I think you can do that. Think of it not just as a... Um, people that have just left college, but you can think about it across a career span, right? How do, and, and actually, I am going to tell you, we're working on this right now in Wyoming. 
We're working on it with a local school district that is um, that wanted some help um, in terms of helping their teachers think about how to teach reading better at the middle and high school level. But those folks are five hours away. OK, so I can't go out there all the time. So we're developing micro courses for them, which gets at, I think, part of this problem that you were talking about with corporations noticing that there are, you know, gaps in knowledge. The school district has said, hey, there's some gaps in knowledge. Um, so we're creating micro courses and the micro courses are meant to be short, like three weeks or less that people can complete. They do it online, but they also have an interactive component where they have to demonstrate what they're learning and get feedback from it. They're on very, the courses are on very specific topics with just very like two or three objectives. They show that they have um, learned those, that they can apply those to their job. And then um, we, they actually get like a professional development kind of a credit here that the, that the state does. Corporations can think of that in terms of you get so many, you know, you do so many of these courses, you get, um, you know, maybe you get, a pay raise, right? Or right. maybe so many, you have to have so many to have, right? A, be a certain, you know, promoted to a certain level. Um, you can think about turning these things into stackable credentials, right? Where you could work with a university to think about what kinds of courses are we going to offer? And maybe if people do particular things, the university is going to be willing to offer a degree, like a, ma a master's degree or some kind of a certification or something that could be beneficial to, you know, not just the corporation, but also to the employee who has some kind of official documentation that they've mastered certain things. So um, those are my those are my thoughts. We have quite a few thoughts. And it seems like you might be uh, <laughs> help design some of this coursework as well and kind of help bridge the gap. So if I were you, I might check into that. I think there might be some money to be made for you. Let me let me ask you, Great. This, Paul, um, to, to end our conversation. Clearly a thought leader. You've demonstrated that through our, our conversation and we contacted you to speak because of what we saw online. So maybe you could fill me in on, you had to pick one thing and, and you, you're on the, we're pretty much talking about the, the future right now. You know, you're talking about trend setting, but if you had to say something that's on the horizon, it's next year, 2018, 2019, 2020, what is something in education that you think is on the horizon um, that we just need to be willing to accept it's going to be happening? I do think more learning is going to shift into online learning. So I know um, from a university higher ed perspective that not everyone has, um, some people have, have gravitated to it, you know, immediately. Um, others have not for whatever reason. But I think if you really want to make an impact, if you really want to be able to truly reach people anywhere in the world, um, not just in your own backyard, not just the people who can afford to live in your town, then you have to accept the fact that online learning is here and you have to, you have to figure out what it's going to look like for you. That said, my concern is that when we shift into really doing more online learning, um, being in higher ed or anywhere else, I, my concern is that it's going to be this replica of a face-to-face -face classroom and it's going to end up being very isolated where, um, you know, I watch some videos or, you know, I, I have some things that I read and, I take a test and you certify me as being done. I, I don't think that I'm concerned that that might be a direction that people go to because it's a direction that people are familiar with and it's easy to do and it's easy to get something out, right, for the public that looks like that and it's easy to score and, and all sorts of stuff. But we, I think we have to push past that. I think if we're going to accept the fact that online learning is here and we need to take it up, we need to think about what... 
what advantages does this space truly afford us? What opportunities does it really afford us? And obviously, one of the things that it affords us is that we can create completely different, you know, interactive learning networks. It's no longer just, you know, I teach an online class, it's closed. If you don't register for it, you're not in it, right? But we can break down these walls and make it so much bigger than that, right? I can develop something for teachers that allows them to form a community where that community right now is small, but over time we'll build on that as we, you know, figure out what we're doing and get a little better at it, build it up so that now we have teachers interacting and learning and helping and getting feedback from experts, you know, ideally across the country and the world. And there's no reason why corporations can't think about that too, right? How do we interact with other corporations and help employees with similar positions learn and interact and share with each other and get input from experts so that they advance their careers and they do their jobs better? So online learning is obviously here, but how we do it and how we do it well and in ways that are meaningful, that's what I think we really need to seriously think about. Because my concern is that what's on the horizon is that we're going to replicate it the way that school has always looked. And I want us to not do that. I want us to push past it and think about new ways that it can look. Wow. Uh, I, I don't really know what to say. I mean, some of your ideas are absolutely incredible, uh, Professor Hall. And again, um, I feel like the past 30 minutes has just been an education for me. You know, you can tell you are definitely uh, you're definitely a teacher. I feel like I definitely learned something over the past 30 minutes. So I want to thank you so much for your time. Again, everybody, we have been speaking with Professor Lee Hall. Uh, she is the Wyoming Excellent Endow Excellence Endowed Chair in Literacy Education. She is part of the Literacy Research Center and Clinic at the University of Wyoming. And uh, Professor Hall, if you could one more time, provide us with uh, your blog and your Twitter handle where people can read more of your uh, thoughts on continuing education. Absolutely. So the blog is teachingacademia.com and Twitter handle is um, at Lee, L-E-I-G-H-A, Hall, H-A-L-L. Great. And we'll have that linked in the podcast for everybody, as well as uh, other specific blogs that Professor Hall mentioned. And for more on education, the latest podcasts like we just listened to with Professor Hall, News Minutes, and the latest articles across academia and the education space, you can go to marketscale.com, go to the industry publication, click education, and you'll find it all there. Once again, my name is Evan Bentley. I want to thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.